Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. My name's Scott. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church. Uh, man, is, is the weather done you as such good to your soul as it has done to mine? Uh, maybe we should all, this is like being in school and you're like, should we just have class outside? Maybe we should all go have class sermon outside. But probably like class in college, everybody will just start picking flowers and stuff and you wouldn't listen to me at all. So, um, This is a parable called the, the parable of the wicked tenants, which Jesus tells. And it's one of those parables that has everything in it. Uh, the scope of this small story from Jesus is so deep uh, it's just got everything. So there's like the full story of God's work through the people of Israel. There's grace. There's judgment. The cross is in here. The love of God is in here. Um, it's all here. It's like the prodigal son. It's just, it's one of those things that you could look into and turn over a thousand times over and get something else out of. And as I've been swimming around in it and kind of asking God, what do you want to teach our community specifically I feel like God wants us to feel two emotions that are at the heart of, of this parable. So more than a history lesson or, or even like an ethical teaching, um, if you're new to the Bible, the point of this parable, I think, is to be moved. I think that's why Jesus was telling it. I think that's what, what God wants us to get from this this morning. Um, when C.S. Lewis reviewed Tolkien's Lord of the Rings when it came out, which what an epic moment that is, right? C.S. Lewis is reviewing the Lord of the Rings. He said this, and it is epic. Here are beauties which pierce like swords or burn like cold iron. Here is a book which will break your heart. Isn't that good? I want to borrow that language. Here is a parable which pierces like swords and burns like cold iron. Here is a, book, here is a parable which will break your heart. Um, there's two emotions in this. One of them is red hot. It pierces it thaws. Another one stings. It burns like cold iron. And both, I think, are meant to break your heart. Uh, they're meant to crack us open in a way that makes us feel alive as creatures of God, responsive to God who's in our midst. And in some ways, um, it's my job as a preacher to try to like open this up in a way that it can be moving to us. But as I prayed about it, I've realized that really there's nothing I can do uh, there's nothing like, no tricks I can perform to make us be moved by this apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and the humbling of our will. So in Ezekiel, uh, the prophet says that all of us have a heart of stone and God is the one who reaches inside of, inside of us and he removes it and he puts in its place a heart of what? Flesh, a beating, feeling, responsive heart. So this morning, uh, there's no pressure to be moved. I'm, I'm not feeling any pressure to do any tricks to make us feel what Jesus is trying to say. We're just at the mercy of God, and he loves to answer that prayer. So why don't we start off, and let's just ask him to give us a heart of flesh. Sound good? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we put ourselves under your word this morning, I pray that you would reach inside of us and give us a beating, feeling, responsive heart to this amazing passage. Lord, you're the only one who knows every single one of us fully in this room right now. You're the only one of us who knows what we need. 
Oh Lord, do what we cannot do. Give us a heart of flesh to hear your word this morning and be moved by the gospel and by Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, flip open to your gospel reading this morning. We're going to dive right into it. The two emotions hinge on two phrases. Uh, and the first phrase is in verse 13. It is, what shall I do? So I want to encourage you, circle it, bracket it, underline it, do as much as you can to, to circle that. That's where we're going. That's where the gold is. That's the first bleeding heart of this story. But we have to back up to get there. So um, to give a little context before we dive in, Jesus tells this story right after he enters Jerusalem in Holy Week. And ever since Jesus entered into Jerusalem during Holy Week, he's caused an absolute ruckus and a, just a massive scene. So first of all, he came in on a donkey like a king, and everybody went nuts and praised him, and that made everybody mad. It was a challenge to the establishment. We'll talk about that next week. Then he cleansed the temple. He goes in and flips all the tables over, and then he started teaching in the temple, which was maybe even more offensive to some people. Like, who is this guy? So he's pushing everybody's buttons, and all the leaders come to him one day when he's teaching in the temple. This is right before he tells this story. And they basically say, who the heck do you think you are? What gives you the right to do any of this? And like, what are you doing? What in the world is going on? And in response to that, he tells this parable. Okay, so let's start it. And he began to tell the people this parable. He's in the temple. There's a crowd watching. It's super tense because all the leaders are there, and they're challenging his authority, and they're asking it where it comes from. And he began to tell this parable. Quote, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Okay, before we move on, I have to pause there, even though we're only one verse in, because through this one little phrase, Jesus is basically alluding to the entire story of the Bible, <laughs> the entire history of God's people. Fruit and vineyards are a central image in the story of scriptures. So think about how the Bible's, Bible begins. Where does the Bible begin? In a garden. What's hanging from the trees in the garden? Fruit. Delicious fruit. And God places Adam and Eve in the garden to do what? To keep it. Right? They were caretakers of God's creation so that it might multiply and grow. But through their sin and rebellion, Adam and Eve lost it. They lost Eden, and instead of enjoying the blessings of the garden, the curse of sin, which comes in Genesis 3, um, brings thorns and thistles, sweat and toil and dust. It's like an image, it's like an anti-vineyard. So you should have two images in your mind. One is of a beautiful, dripping, ripe garden. We're not there yet, but we're, we're getting close, right? When all of Wisconsin's just going to go, Poof! have that image in your mind. That's the symbol of blessing. That's the symbol of God's blessing personally, socially, culturally. It's flourishing. It's things are right. It's the way God intended things to be. The other, think of a wasteland. Maybe right now, even though we're getting close, think of Wisconsin in the middle of the winter with no snow. There's no green. Nothing's growing. Thorns and thistles. That is the image of the curse of sin. And it's not just an image. We know what that feels like personally, culturally, socially. This is desolation and brokenness when we look at our world and we weep. How did we come to this? Adam and Eve, they're the first tenants. They're meant to be stewards of God's blessing, caretakers in his garden, but they grasped at it for themselves and it turned to thorns and thistles. 
Okay, now if you know the story of the Bible, this is really cool, what God does next. After all that happened, the garden's lost, everything goes to a wasteland, but God doesn't leave his people in dying farmland. Instead, he chose a people, uh, the people of Israel, and he blessed them uniquely so that through them the whole world would be blessed. And guess what image the Old Testament gives to the people of Israel? You can talk back to me. A vineyard! In the Psalms and Prophets, uh, Psalm 80 really says this. This is in a lot of places. God uses this analogy where when he brings his people out of Egypt, it literally says, it's like he took a plant and he uprooted it like a vine, and then he went out to find the perfect spot. And it literally says he cleared everything, he removed stones, he found the perfect space to plant them. Isn't that amazing? And guess what Israel was supposed to do? <sighs> Flourish until God's blessing, his fruit, got so big and spread so far over the world that all the people in the world would come and find shelter, food, abundance, joy. It was supposed to be like Eden again. That's behind this parable, and every single person listening to Jesus would have known it. Isn't that awesome? Look back at your Luke passage. Jesus goes on, and this is where it gets really sharp, okay? Verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. And this one they also wounded and cast out. So eventually, in Jesus' story, the owner of the vineyard, this is getting more tense, right, wants to see some of the fruit. So he sends a, a servant to go in. The first is physically beaten, and then he's sent away. So this guy is punched around, kicked, sent out. The second is beaten and also shamed. Uh, this is really important. This is worse, and this is in an honor-shame culture. There's this one story in the Old Testament where King David sends servants of his to another king to peaceably, like, you know, connect. And the king in the other place receives David's servants and then treats them shamefully. They shave their beards, which that would be bad for us, but that meant a lot worse things back in the day if you shaved somebody's beard. And then they cut off all their clothes at the hip to expose them and sent them out. Okay, if somebody did that to you today, that would be a massive issue. But in that culture, for that to happen, the, the guys that that happened to, they would have probably never wanted to come back in public life again. That's just an ultimate shaming. That's what these people do to the second servant who comes. They beat him, and then they go further than physical abuse. They insult, they shame this guy. Okay, God sends a third servant and it says he's wounded and cast out. And the word wounded here is the same one that's used for the guy in the Good Samaritan. If you're familiar with that story, he's wounded, and the, that word connotates trauma. It connotates such deep abuse to the point of it being a, a traumatic experience. So this is profound abuse and inflicted pain. And here's where we get to the first red-hot bleeding heart of this story, okay? Read with me in verse 13. Then... The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? And then I want you to stop there. A commentator I was reading on this week pointed out that after that question mark and what, what shall I do, you should see a vast emotional chasm. Let's put ourselves in the story for a second. 
this man owns a vineyard, okay? It's his. He blessed the tenants. He trusted them to cultivate and take care of it. And he sends the servants. They routinely abuse and shame and beat his servants for his own vineyard. And that means that the owner of the vineyard has been shamed publicly. So this is an open, brazen confrontation. This is spitting in his face. And so the owner, no doubt filled with rage, with anger, with pain, with betrayal, humiliation, he's tossing and turning in his bed at night, and he's thinking, what am I going to do about this? Have you ever been hurt, specifically wounded? And all, I, I don't need to ask the question. You have. And you carry around with you. It's just always with you. You're brushing your teeth and you're thinking about, what am I going to do about this? How do I respond to this pain that won't go away? I heard a story one time about a guy who had been publicly humiliated, and it was a couple days after, and he was so overwhelmed by it that he was filling up his car with gas and just was so scattered that he just got in the car and drove off and ripped the pump out of the pump and gas is going everywhere. And he didn't notice till like somebody down the road is like, you've got a gas pump like hanging from your car because he was so torn up about it. That's what you should see filling up after that question mark. What am I going to do? What would you do? I can tell you in my anger, I would probably want justice in a way that is not loving, to put it lightly. After David's servants were destroyed in that, that story I told, the guys who did it actually knew, wow, we're toast because that was, that was awful. So they confronted David in battle, but they were eventually utterly destroyed. It was a bad idea to do that to those guys. Do you know who the owner of the vineyard is in this story? God the Father. God is the one who planted the vineyard, right? The servants are prophets who God would send to his people. And from the time of the Exodus, from the time he took the vine out of Egypt to plant it to Jesus' day, the caretakers of the vineyard had repeatedly rejected the prophets, abused them, killed them, beat them, and sent them away. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They grasped at the vineyard themselves, they forgot they were tenants. It is God who is metaphorically tossing and turning at night, wondering, what shall I do? Okay, you ready for this? This is good. Look at your Bible or your bulletin. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Pause. After all that, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. After literally thousands of years of God's people squandering his gifts, after being publicly humiliated, this is God we're talking about. God, in his eternal wisdom, ponders his next move and then decides not to come in force, not to reject them. What? No, he decides to become more vulnerable. Do you see that? He opens himself up even more in love and in a relationship to these people. He gives what is most precious to him, and that is his beloved son. And when you hear beloved son, you should be thinking, oh, that's Messiah language. That's suffering servant language in Isaiah. That is Jesus at his baptism language, right? 
I would never dream of doing this. I have two sons. I guarantee you I would never do this. My hunch is you wouldn't either. Why would God do it? Why in the world would he decide to do this? The only explanation is that God's love for you and for me and for humanity is deeper and wider and longer and higher than you and I can even possibly fathom. It's another dimension of love. Amen? And notice why he's doing it. Perhaps they will respect him. The Greek word there is actually about feeling shame, believe it or not. So it's kind of lost in translation. So really what God is saying is, perhaps by being so noble, by even opening myself up and being so vulnerable and loving, they will feel shame for what they've done and turn to me. That's the essence of what God's saying there. Perhaps they'll just be so knocked off their feet that they'll, they'll re- repent and turn to me. In our Exodus reading this week uh, that Sarah read, it says, God brings Moses up on the mountain so that he could tell Moses his name. Do you know that God has a name? Um, if you're not that familiar with the Old Testament, this is, this is really cool. In our Bible, it actually didn't make it into the, the copy and pasting in our bulletin. But whenever you see LORD in all caps in your Bible, it's a placeholder for God's name in Hebrew, which is Yahweh. And Yahweh is translated as I am. But God's name goes on. He has a tagline that comes with it. I love how boxers and sports players have nicknames and like hype names. Um, So Rocky Balboa is the Italian stallion, the pride of Philadelphia, you know, when they're coming out in the ring. Mike Tyson's uh, was Iron Mike, Kid Dynamite. I love Kid Dynamite. What an amazing hype name. The baddest man on the planet. The most famous person with hype names and nicknames is Babe Ruth. What are some of his? The great Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout, the Behemoth of Bust. I didn't know that one until I looked it up this week. It's the exact same for God in the Bible. This is, this is true. It's all over the Bible. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has a tagline. Look at Exodus real quick with me. Flip there in your bulletin. I think this is in verse 6. He says, I'm going to tell you my name, Moses. And then he says it. The Lord, the Lord, and here it is, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and that means thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is such an amazing description. He's saying, it's saying he's so slow to get angry. His fuse is longer than we can possibly imagine, but he's so quick to show love and forgiveness. He's so slow to get angry. He he forgives immediately. And you guys should know this because we've sung it literally for like six services in a row, and we're going to do it again today. Did you know you've been memorizing Scripture and God's tagline? That's why we're doing it. This is God's nickname. This is his hype name. I've loved this image this week of God coming into the ring, pumping his fists, and somebody screaming into a loudspeaker, Yahweh, Yahweh, slow to anger, rich in love abounding in steadfast love to thousands of generations. And the crowd goes nuts. I think what's especially shocking about this too is other gods, idols back in that day, their hype name would have been all like, destroys everybody who messes with them first, you know, heaps up corpses and like, who will challenge whatever. But God's 
God's of the Bible, his one is different. It's all about his slow to anger and his love. Amen? Don't you see that character in this parable? Oh, my goodness. The tenants show generations of rebellion. They spit in his face. They mutilate his servants. And what does God do? He forgives. He has so much love, and he's slow to anger. He sends his beloved son. Perhaps they will feel shame. Perhaps they will repent. Who is like the Lord our God, the Israelites used to say? And the answer is what? No one. No one is like the Lord our God. This is the first great shock and emotion. I imagine the people listening to this must have been moved by that. Behold the heart of God. So God decides to send his beloved son, and let's read on. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Oh, my goodness. This is so insane. Everything about this is insane. They think that they can kill the guy and then somehow, like, win and get the inheritance. So they think if we kill the son, then it's all going to be over. Nobody's ever going to send anything anymore, and it'll just be ours. And we can do whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want. They, they want God's blessing without him, right? We love the vineyard, but we just don't want you. So the tenants take the son. They throw him outside of the vineyard. That's significant for what's going to happen to Jesus a couple days after this, right? And they kill him. They do the worst to the son than to any of the other servants. They beat and shamed the other folks. They kill the son. And we're going to look that in the face on Good Friday. What happens next? Let's read on. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Here's the the second great shock and emotion. This is the one that stings. I want you to underline, surely not. Surely not. Jesus says that because they killed the son and refused to feel shame, God will judge them. He will destroy them and give their job of cultivating the garden to others. Now, I hope you can see that this is utterly just for God to do. It's impossible to accuse God in this story, if you actually think about it, of being harsh. If anything, you can accuse him of being too long-suffering, of too vulnerable, too gracious. But then after Jesus says that, the people listening, they hear it and they go, No! (gasps) What? The phrase in Greek could also be translated as, By no means, or impossible! That can't be! Now, what is this emotion? This is the shock from the people that God finally did something. He finally did something about it. If you hang out around toddlers at all, whether they're yours or they're somebody else's toddlers, you will see something that we all do, but we just know how to hide better as adults. And that is that they push their parents until they find the line. (laughs) Many of you are smiling when they finally crack it, right? We all do this. Toddlers just, they don't know how to hide it yet, okay? A mom will say to a toddler, quit hitting your spoon with spaghetti sauce on the wall. Something, you know. (laughs) The kid looks at him and goes, okay. (laughs) Keeps on hitting on the wall, right? And mom says, stop doing that. Or if you do, eventually you're going to have to go to your room and you don't get dessert or whatever. Okay? Stops and the kid 
keeps on smacking the wall until mom cracks. That's it. Go, you know, off to bed, whatever. And what happens? The child is shocked, right? What? No, it's this tragedy. Like, no, I wanted dessert. Like, how could I do that? They're mortified that mom kept her word. <laughs> exactly. They're mortified that they're out of the mouths of babes and infants right there. They're mortified that there's actually a consequence. God's people got used to his graciousness and love. This stings. They got used to his vulnerability. They squatted on his blessings. They rejected his word. They enabled injustice and immorality and thought he would never do anything about it. But Jesus talking to the leaders in the temple days before his crucifixion, this is so tense, said God's going to give the vineyard to others. And the people are stunned. They're like, no, wait, you can't do that. That's impossible. Let's go back to God's hype name in Exodus. You can flip there or you can just listen. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If God was only gracious and vulnerable, we would have no hope because that means wickedness and evil would triumph. It would be like a, a really kind but bad leader who lets evil and insubordination and wickedness just run free in whatever he was in charge of. But God is just and righteous, just as he is full of compassion and, and in love. And it's amazing how you see both sides of that in this parable. In his hype name, this is really important for us to get. This is just amazing, something that we should all want to model as we were created to, okay? God's love goes to a thousand. Did you notice that? Thousands of generations. And we see that here. His long suffering is so great. But he's still just, even if his judgment only goes to three or four, that balance, I should say imbalance, is really significant in the character of God. I used to read that and be like, oh my gosh, God punishes iniquity of the third and fourth generation, until I realized that came after he said he shows love to thousands of generations. So if you're comparing God's judgment and his love, his love goes to a thousand, his judgment goes to three and four, but it's really important that he says he will by no means just let everything go. That would be awful. We don't want that. So we're thawed by his loving kindness, and we're stung by the seriousness of his justice. Do you guys see that in this parable? I'm not making that up. It's all here. This parable of Jesus has a particular application towards these Jewish leaders, but we shouldn't for a second think that it's not for us, right? It's for all people. Um, like I said, as Jesus gets closer to the cross and all the stories in the Bible, he starts talking about the severity of God's judgment more and more about people who weren't ready. They didn't take God's word seriously. We're just schwacking the wall with the spaghetti sauce and like, mom's not gonna do anything about this. Um, it's interesting, Paul, uh, who wrote a lot of the New Testament later on in the book of Romans, talks about how God's grace is endless. It knows no bounds. But then he says something interesting. Listen, just because God is so gracious, does that mean you should just keep on sinning so that grace may increase? And you know what he says? 
the exact same expression that the people say. Surely not. By no means. Impossible. Just because God's grace goes to the thousandth generation doesn't mean that you and I have a license to ignore him and squat on his blessings and reject him. Let's finish the passage, verse 17. Oh my gosh, this is so epic. I love that Luke decided to record this. But he looked directly at them. This is right after they went, surely not. Jesus stares them in the eyes and says, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 here, which we read this morning. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I think Jesus' point here, what he's saying is basically this. You can reject me. You can throw me out. You can try to silence me and crucify me, but you're not going to stop God's plan to bless the world through Jesus. You can't stop it. By throwing me out, you're just going to be separating yourself from the cornerstone, and Jesus is also known as the true vine. I am the vine. You're the branches, right? You're chucking the true vine, the thing that gives life to the vineyard, outside of the vineyard, and it's just going to grow. It's going to keep on growing, but it's going to grow apart from you. And I think the image at the end there of that, like, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, it's just this image of if you try and stop it, if you try and smash it, you're just going to be broken to pieces. The stone's immovable. Can you imagine the tension as all this was happening? Do you know what the very verse that comes right after this? If you have your Bible, you can see it. If it's in your bulletin, it's what comes right after the end of this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Jesus told this parable in a specific context to specific people, but it's also for us. This is where it gets really cool, and I think these emotions come into play. We are in the middle of this parable right now. This is kind of the mind bomb for me this week. We're right in the middle of it. After Jesus died and rose again, he said he was going away, <laughs> like the owner did at the beginning of this. <sighs> but that one day he would return. And guess what Jesus left on earth when he ascended into heaven? A vineyard. He left a plant. Right? Jesus is the branch that bore fruit out of the stump of Jesse. So God planted his vineyard because one day he knew Jesus, the true vine, would come out of it, which is so amazing. And the church, all of us, are a part of that now. We've been grafted in. The image for the church is a plant. Did you know we're called a church plant? Did you know that language comes from the Bible? The Apostle Paul uses that language. Do you know why we're a plant? So we grow and bear fruit. And God's blessing can once again fill the earth. We are a plant so that people can come and find shelter and eat rich food and experience God, God's blessing once again. And God, Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years, and he's saying he's come back. He could come back in an hour if he wants to. But do you know why he's been gone so long? 
This is what Second Peter says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some have counted slowness. I love how he allows that. <laughs> he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Behold the slow love of God. God is waiting. He's letting this plant grow so that more and more people have an opportunity to come and feast. He's still being gracious. And this means that you and I are tenants. If you're a part of God's church, if you, if you follow Jesus, you and I are tenants in the vineyard. We are caretakers of God's blessing for the life of the world. So what is the charge for us? I think it lies in these two emotions. What shall I do? Surely not. As caretakers of God's vineyards, we need to feel the sting of surely not. These were religious leaders who became spiritual squatters. You guys know what squatters are? Somebody who sits long enough on, on somebody else's property until they think, this is mine. <laughs> we do that spiritually. They forgot that everything they had was from God. And they decided to do things their own way. These were people who sought a very moral lifestyle. Uh, they were proud of being spiritual, but they did that apart from the cornerstone. Do you know that everything you have is from God? Amen? Everything. Everything. The church is his. We are his. I think the sting of this hits people like me. This might not hit all of us the same, um, particularly for nominal Christians, for those of us who maybe receive some type of inheritance of Christianity, and it's not meant to shame you or make you feel guilty, but it's just a way of thinking, man, do I take this seriously? We all have that temptation to, to just kind of grasp at it and do whatever we want and not be too bothered. This is how the people treated the prophets. They would come and call them out on that, and they would say, no, get out of here. We don't want to listen to you. But then all of us, whether you're a Christian or whether you're here this morning and you're just interested in Christian things, we need to take a hot, warm bath in what shall I do? <laughs> out of context, that's a really weird sentence, but I think you guys know what I mean. Um, do you know... Think about this for a second. Do you know that those leaders that Jesus was challenging, if they repented, Jesus would have forgiven them? <laughs> Do you know that even after they killed him, if they would have repented, they would have been forgiven? The vineyard is taken away not because they messed up. All, they had messed up for thousands of years at that point. The vineyard is taken away for a lack at all to repent, to have your heart be humbled. And that question is now put to us. We are tenants who are seeing the Father's immense love just like they were in the offering of his son. So you and I are in the place uh, where God sent his son, and we're looking at it. In Holy Week, we're literally going to spend so much time thinking about how God sent his beloved son. And for us, as it was for them, we're meant to hear, perhaps they will fall when they see this. Perhaps they'll be so moved by the love and forgiveness of God that they'll return. Oh, that we might be moved by that. Oh, that we might be compelled out of our shame to the one who is slow to anger, rich in love, and abounding in forgiveness. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.